company needs to thrive and survive so there can be a culture. But how can you do it in a good way? You know, this is what comes into listening. If I could get in front of those leaders and show them results and say, you made this decision and look at your scores, they plummeted by 15 points. Is this the decision you wanna make or do you wanna take a different path? Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Break the Wheel. I'm David Murray here with Craig Foreman, founder of Culture Seat Consulting and former lead people scientist at CultureAmp. Craig, thank you for being here. David, thank you for asking me to be here. I'm happy to be here. I love the work you're doing and excited for this conversation. I love it. So, I mean, obviously, like with the, the background from CultureAmp alone, like there's just like a bunch of meaty stuff for us to talk about. And uh, yeah, your name is a name that I have heard for a while. So I'm really excited for us to, to reconnect or I uh, reconnect to connect. And then eventually but later. I take pride that you just said reconnect. That, that means that means I've done a good job at the brand building and like, to you we're reconnecting. And to me, we are connecting, but um, I'm excited. And I have a funny feeling this is not the first time. <laughs> yeah, me too. Awesome. Cool. Well, kicking it off to unfork and unwind. I have a wine today from New York. And you got you got your coffee. All good. Is it coffee? It is coffee. Secret elixir or something. Cool. Bay Area. Um, Bay Area coffee. <laughs> Bay Area coffee. There you go. Because you're in Marin and I'm in San Francisco. You know it. So today's wine is from New York. And speaking of New York, New York City's law restricting the use of artificial intelligence tools in the hiring process goes into effect at the beginning of 2024. The law comes with two main requirements. Employers must audit any automated decision tools used in hiring or promoting employees before using them, and they must notify job candidates or employees no less than 10 business days before they're used. What do you think about that, Craig? Uh, getting right into it. What do I think about that? Look, I I admire the... Uh, they're trying, they're doing like at least some, you know, thinking about it. I, I respect the behind that is basically, can we be ethical? How do we use this? How does it not get, you know, misused? However, good luck. I mean, this is, uh, this is so big. I don't know specifically about that. And I, and I do, I, I love, it sounds like they're trying to take a little bit of a pause, but how do you pause New York city when you're not pausing? I mean, these companies are hiring globally, like, or all across the United country. So I think it's an honest attempt. I like the spirit, both scared and blown away and mesmerized and love the possibilities of what's coming with AI. I think it's going to transform everything, particularly in our space and every space. So I sit kind of with this, this duality of like, oh, this is kind of scary. And also this is mind blowing. And I think it's, it has so many implications across talent and across our organizations that I just keep saying, brace yourself. Yeah, totally. And you can tell just from, from laws like this, that's like, there's clearly a need of folks going like, oh gosh, we need to get laws out there like real quick. We need to do something, regulate something. And then they kind of throw stuff out there and it's like, I mean, you know, I think what scares me the most is, is, is you just in general, like the speed at which our federal government can respond to most things and that the speed of this and how important this is. So it's like nice that New York city is doing it, but really, if anything, we should be thinking about it at the federal level and having honest conversations. And I just don't know if, I don't know that the way our government set up can respond fast enough to what's happening. I know. A lot of things are changing really, really fast. What do you think about it? What do you think about it? And how's it, how's it landing for you? I mean, you know, AI, of course, I mean, there's like AI fatigue in terms of talking about it, but there's still like, it's very clear from, from everybody that I'm talking to in the HR space that there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's okay, what's not okay, right? There's clarity about like, if I want to do something creative 
you know, if I need to get some brainstorming for writing a document, if I, you know, want uh, to soliloquize my like presentation I'm about to make, whatever, it's like, then it's great, right? There's, of course, the, the concerns that, you know, I mean, I saw like uh, somebody giving a talk the other day saying they found, you know, the, the some of the core documents that are now powering the latest version of ChatGPT's model. And like, she realized all of her books are included there without her permission because there was a you know, methodology to reverse engineer to see what some of those sources yeah. were and, and have them just get, you know, spat out like verbatim. So yeah, there's obviously ethical dubiousness that's out there. And at the same time, there are problems being solved, but there's bias being introduced, but also the biases of humans alone Scarier. are quite high. You know, like we need to check our biases, whether they come from us or they come from from tools. But yeah, I I mean, I say this, like I, I don't have kids and I don't want to have kids partially because I'm just lazy and like this, this plant is, you know, barely surviving. Good, good. Needed. You're good. Good. Smart. Keep, keep on the path. Yeah. But, but part of it, I mean, I have a niece, I have a nephew, you know, who I spoil, but I am really frightened of bringing children into this world because of things like yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, look, I have children and every day, you know, gosh, what, what will this world look like that you know, when I'm gone, they're here. All those things you mentioned are true, all these big, big things. And, uh, you know, to get a little more focused, I'll tell you some of the things that have been on my mind. One is to anybody who's listening, there's a guy named Ethan Mollick. He is a professor at um, Wharton, and he's great. You can look at his YouTube videos because he, he's so smart about it. He's been studying it for many years. They use it at Wharton, and been, he's been using it in labs and classes. So he just, he just gives a lot of great information. But a couple things, and probably mostly referenced by him. One is... What he said, he said there's some research that says they suspect about 60% of, of the U.S. workforce is using it in some way, shape, or form, and most are not saying anything about it. So everybody out there that's using it, wonder if they should or not, guess what? Everybody else, I think, right now is also using it. Some are choosing to say they are, some aren't, but it, it is becoming ubiquitous. But here was the thing that he spoke about that really got me thinking about our world. And there's a lot of different ways to, you know, to, to approach this, but he said that there's a thing happening right now, and it might not be massive, but it's definitely a thing particularly in technical jobs and uh, computer engineering jobs where people are having getting two, three, four jobs, not telling the employers. When I hear that, there's so many ways to pick at it. But to me, it is it is the first indicator of the immense shift in productivity and that the things that we've spent time doing, are they really important? If you're really great at coding and you can have a tool like this that can allow you to, to 4x your output now, here, look, our organizations are going to catch up. It might be neat right now. I get a little nervous because that tells me, are we going to three you know, one third are, you know, as soon as organizations get with it, what are they going to say? Okay, great. I can hire an engineer that can do three times the work. What's going to happen to productivity? What's going to happen to our workforce? These things scare me, you know, and I also think there's things coming. There's jobs we don't know about, but just how many people, I hope people are listening and understanding like where to put your energy moving forward. What are the things that have been valuable for a long time that are not? And what are the things that are going to be more valuable moving forward? Because I'm, I'm kind of nervous and scared for what it might do and excited to our workforce and to our workforce really quickly. Absolutely. Gosh, we could make this whole conversation just about this. I know. But in the spirit of covering a lot of stuff, mm. I'm going to move on. Let's do it. So the HR news flash. So there's a new trend dubbed quiet cutting. I know there's a quiet something, right? Quiet cutting so is the latest outgrowth of the quiet quitting movement. So a quiet cut is essentially when an employee gets an email from a manager telling them their job has been reassigned and they'll be doing this from now on and basically take it or leave it. So the reassignments often land them in roles with titles that are less prestigious, come with lower pay and are more demanding. This effectively allows companies to cut jobs and trim costs without actually laying off workers. 
despite the downsides, quiet cutting might seem like it works. So Zetwork found 40% of the people who are quietly cut eventually leave and about 25% more plan to leave. Probably not a lot of surprise there. Companies including Adidas, Adobe, IBM, and Salesforce are among employers that have restructured their workforces in this way over the past year. What are your thoughts on that? First, I, I get a shiver every time you hear the quiet thing. I, I still do. <laughs> to this day. It's kind of like it's kind of like during the pandemic, like now more than ever. It's like, shut the f- <laughs> up. Like, okay, you don't need to say keep using. Well, term. here's what got me with quiet quitting. And we'll move on very quickly. With quiet quitting, I, I just kept saying... Is anybody explaining to me why this is different than a, dis- a disengaged employee previously before the pandemic? And we talked about engaged, actively, you know, disengaged, actively disengaged. Absolutely. And I was like, it, and, and not even from a cynical place. I'm like, okay, if we're going to have a new term, help me understand. And I talked to colleagues, I talked to other people. And I just kept coming back to like, they've just repackaged this. And But the worst was, which I really loved, the Gallup State of the Workforce report that came out in 2023. They took their, you know, what they always, they show, you know, they're the ones that for many years engaged, disengaged, actively disengaged. That's the three buckets for them. And under those titles said, you know, engaged, quitting, quiet quitting. And they're like, we're reframing. I'm like, you've just proven this whole point. Why are you doing this? Like, if it's not new, whatever, quiet cutting. I hadn't, I hadn't heard the term until recently. What do I think? Look, I so my background, if anybody's listening, I was six years as a lead people scientist at Culture Amp, and I spent a lot of time with organizations and helping them think about how are they collecting data, how are they listening to their employees at scale. So, right, so listening is, you know, if you're gonna dig in with me, listening is one thing, but listening at scale organization is another thing. How do we get relevant information, information that leaders can leverage and use to make decisions? And one of the questions on the survey is my you know, basically my role is, you know, how do I feel about my role as compared to how it was described to me. When we know when people score low on that, that's um, a high driver of disengagement and also a high driver of turnover. So when I hear that, instead, before I get into any of the other stuff and the like, what the news is saying, I just, I just know that humans, one of the big drivers of engagement is this idea of agency and that when we go into organizations are really not designed oftentimes for human. And one of them is how disempowering they can be with the hierarchies that we've set up. So when people lose agency, they kind of typically act out. If you tell me I'm going to do one thing, now I'm there. This is how I pay my bills, how I take care of my family. Now you tell me I'm doing something else. Naturally, even if I might like the new thing, I'm going to feel like that you didn't respect me in that. And how? Yeah. what's our relationship here? Look, and on the flip side, as much as I, I, I love to see companies do things, I often say culture first or thinking about it in like, how do you want to show up as an employer and for the long game? I get that people might leave and they're going to rehire into those. This could be a bigger kind of, uh, I don't want to say Machiavellian, but strategy at the top of saying, look, we're going to do, we're realigning. We're not going to do layoffs, but we know people are going to leave and then we'll just replace them with the right roles. So I don't like that. I like to see companies behave. I believe human and productivity can be, you know, that when people are happy and enjoy their workplace, the workplaces thrive. I also know that companies sometimes make decisions that are at much larger scale and that this may be one of them. Like, we're going to do it. If you leave, fine. I'll replace you with the right person. And if you like the job, great. I don't like when organizations kind of take take advantage of the contract, you know? Um, totally. And if there's the a, a little bit of a, for lack of better words, a dehumanization where you're, you're just kind of like pushing people. Come to me. Say this role's changing. Do we need to come up with a three-month strategy? Maybe we need to transition. Can you help us roll somebody in? This isn't working. How can we support right. you? Do you want to do this? Here are five new jobs coming. I mean, like these things happen, like, and I always talk about that. We have to accept 
the game we're playing and also the human realness of it. Part of it's fake, it's a game. We weren't built, we didn't come up on this planet stuffing into buildings, doing this work that we can't touch, see, or feel. So there's a game being played, but also these are humans. These are real lives and relationships. So I, I try to see both. So in this case, it's it's except the game that like, you know, if a company doesn't make certain decisions, they cease to like, who cares about any of this stuff here? Cause the culture, the cult, it's not there anymore, it's gone. So the company needs to thrive and survive so there can be a culture. Well, how can you do it in a good way? And how can we do it? You know, this is what comes into listening. If I could get in front of those leaders and show them results and say, you made this decision and look at your scores, they plummeted by 15 points. Is this the decision you want to make or do you want to take a different path? That's what I want to get to is that we're having real conversations based on facts and helping leaders say, what's your long play here? If you can make a short-term decision that crushes your employee engagement, it's going to take you 18 to 24 months to get back. Is that the decision you want to make? And it might be like, we have to do a riff. Yes. Okay. You have to do it. How's the best way to do it as, as you know, human focused and working with people. And honestly, I thought this before the, before COVID, but now companies that do this better with distributed, you know, way more flat organizations are going to thrive because they're listening and they're in sync with their people versus a, a group of people. I, all this talk about the, the leader decided was come back to the office. Like, okay, let's see how that goes. Like what, based on what? On one person's desire to have command and control or based on some sort of data saying, look, this is a hospital. <laughs> like we oh, yeah. need it, and you talk, know? Right. And talk about stripping away autonomy. I mean, that's the, I think all of us know that person or have that partner. In my case, I have that partner, you know, who's like, in fact, like now I'm hearing an organization that said uh, unofficially, like, Tell all of the managers that their their team needs to come in five days a week because we're expecting they're only going to come in three days a week. But if we tell them five, then maybe it'll end up being three. The whole thing is just a big mess. And I, I like to, to your point on like, you know, the game is happening regardless, but we're human. I, I like to say uh, business is business, but it's between people, not robots. And uh, it sounds like everything that you're saying is aligned with that. And it's always been my like deeper, that. this deeper belief that... Like early on for me, at least, it became clear. And what's driven me in my journey into organizational psychology and the work I've done is I felt like early on in my own journey, I, I had experiences where I had these jobs where it was like, wow, people are happy and the business is really successful. And to me, I was like, isn't that perfect? Like, I love business and people. And I've also had jobs that have been awful and crushing and all the, all the, all the above. So I think I've just always been led with this idea of and believe me, I've worked with all kinds of organizations. They're not all aligned with me philosophically, but like this belief that we can, if it's, if it's a cutthroat business leader that says, I want to have a great culture because I know it's going to deliver fine, you know, whatever. Or if it's somebody that says, I just believe that I want to, I want to build a business, take care of people while I'm doing it. It's all great. It's, it's just the idea that it's good business to take care of people, to do it right and not to shortcut because there's always baggage and there's cultural debt that you're going to carry. And then my thing is what I've learned along the way is how to help organizations measure and do it with intention and use real data that they don't believe exists. And it does. Um, and it's powerful. Well, this is a great transition to the reality check, which is your, your spotlight. And I really do want to dig deeper into this. So, I mean, obviously the time that you spent at Coltramp, just, just given, you know, everything that, that folks do and discover with Coltramp, I'm sure you're, you're working directly with clients when you're there and, and seeing a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, like, Given limited time, like if there's if there's one or two things that you know you wish that folks knew that you know about about your day to day, you know the realities, the things that you see, maybe that I'm going to combine segments here. Reality check and people misunderstand. Maybe that people misunderstand about culture setting or yeah. listening. What I think people misunderstand, and I, I and I, I judge that. 
I project that there's maybe, I, when I say data, if somebody said to me data, what would go through my mind? What I've learned is data alone is boring. Let's be real. Data is not inspirational. It's quantifiable, but it's boring. If I send you an email full of a whole bunch of stats and say, we make a decision, they've done MRIs that show if I just give you a lot of data, like a little part of your brain lights up, right? But, but data in itself is not inspiring. Stories are incredibly inspiring. If I tell you a story and if I do it well and I put you in that same MRI, your whole brain lights up. However, stories are inspirational, but don't always drive change. They can make you feel good. They don't drive change. And so when I, it's, I have to use the word data because I use work a lot with that. But what I'm really thinking about is how do we merge data and story to create context? And that's where change happens and helping leaders of organizations how do I navigate through the initial like whatever it's fluffy to like, no, no, no. I've seen this enough times where I've gone in and worked with an organization and a senior leadership team. We've put in place a robust, reliable, valid listening tool and we've come back to the table. And here's what I always find. And I think it's this is what drives me. There's always some something that we validate, a belief that they have about the organization, around teams, around leadership, around all kinds of things that we see that that's that's the case. There is also always, sometimes different varying degrees, but always what I call myth busting, that when we get real data back, there's always something go, oh my gosh, I thought that team was really struggling. They look great, I, right? Or, or I didn't realize that that's how people felt about, you know, our vision, our strategy. Or so imagine, put yourself in my seat. I've done this with hundreds of organizations. When I walk into a company and they're like, we're not really doing anything, or we just use Google surveys in our office, our office, uh, you know, admin helps run it. I think to myself, you think you're doing a good job. You're asking good questions, but there's so many layers of how are you segmenting it? Do people trust it? How are you getting it out to people? How are you looking at it? How are you interpreting it? And what you might be missing along the way. I'll give you a great example. I just have been working this past year with this organization on a culture transformation. And part of it was we're bringing data to the table. There was a new CEO that had just come in. The company had grown and done well, but was looking to go to the next level. We ran the survey. I came back to give a debrief to the executive team. And I said, um, one of the things I called out was just when we looked at one of the offices, the scores were way off around engagement than the other offices. And the CEO looked at it and he was like, I knew it. I knew I needed to get down there. Meaning he knew there was a problem among all the other problems that he had, clearly as a CEO trying to juggle this and a brand new CEO. He got his butt on a plane in like the next two weeks and spent time in that office and then did it one more time. And which he wouldn't have done in between. Then we ran the survey again six, seven months later. The scores rose by 15 points. And I honestly believe it was as simple as quantifying something he already knew, put it into context. He made the decision. He knew what to do. And by showing up, made the difference. It was not some big, complicated process. It was using data and story to help him go, that's where I need to focus my attention. So I think that's a big misunderstanding of what's possible. And it's it's such a low cost, you know. So when I think about what companies spend on their marketing understanding and analysis, their sales understanding and analysis, but you say your people and your culture are most important, how are you investing in that? And, and the irony is it's it's so much less expensive than all those other things. And if you believe that's your biggest driver of an organization, why don't you understand? So that's the misunderstanding. Is, and, and my work is how do I help organizations and leadership teams understand what's possible just to get it in their hands because they can do so much better. Yeah. So that's, that's that. my big, that's my big one. Uh, no, I love that. You know, it's clear without data, there's always like plausible deniability or kind of that like, well, I think this is a problem, but there's not enough certainty. So you're not necessarily motivated to take action. You know, bias comes up a lot as you know, like, right, we do organizational network analysis 
at Confirm, we asked people who do they go for to for help, advice, energy, motivation, et cetera, to try and identify the tales of performance as seen by the network as another piece of data. And one of the, you know, the, the things that people kind of will sometimes ask is if you're asking questions like that, like, is it a popularity contest? And it's like, well, first of all, there's a popularity contest of one when you're managing up to your manager, number one. Number two, when you're doing peer 360s, like there's a selection bias popularity contest when you're picking the people, you know, to write about you. But the, the important thing that a lot of people forget is that if you want to do anything about bias in your organization, just to your point, you got to measure it. You know, you got to see like what, what is actually occurring in your organization that's a problem if you want to be able to, to take action on it. And if you're and like what better a way than to ask questions to people about what they see and what they perceive and then measure the bias from that and go, oh, it looks like this person that's in a, you know, a highly visible role or, or you know, or this person that's that's underrepresented. And I look at the comments that are being shared and like the the what's being said and you see like, oh, there's bias here that then you can do something yeah. about it, you know? And I, I want to be clear, and I think this is important that we throw that word bias around a lot. I think there's bias that we have to keep an eye on that's having negative impact on people. But our brains are biased by default. We can't, there's too much data to take in. So we're trying to create buckets and stories and understand. That's perfectly fine. And I, I think that it's the data and the, the either validating or breaking apart some of our stories based on, on, on the data. But I want to share something with you that I think is really relevant to your work, to my work, and to probably this audience. And I also, I know when I talk about data, oftentimes people might think, but like, these are people, like it's not just data. Absolutely. So here's how I think about it. Data can tell us a lot about a group, but very little about an individual. An individual can tell us a lot about themselves, but very little about a group. When you put those two together, data should help direct and help us understand. You know, if you're managing 200, 300, 1,000 people, you think you're having a lot of conversations, but you're not. That's the bias part that you need something to check it out. But the data should just point you in the direction and your manager and your leaders in the direction to go talk to the people. Um, because that's where we get in trouble. If I send a survey and I say, you know, you know, only two out of 10 male engineers uh, struggle with their with their managers, but six out of 10 female manager engineers struggle. And that manager gets that information and goes back and thinks the female on their team doesn't like them. That's wrong. It tells you nothing about her. It only tells you about this kind of like larger. So that's where we get in trouble is when we merge the two together and we see large data and we think that tells us something about a person. It doesn't. I've seen it too many times where, oh, I know who said that. And then we've, no, no, they didn't say that. So we got to be careful there. And I think I often work with organizations to help them see those two. I don't want to just unleash data and say, don't be human. I just said, let's use data to help us understand where and what to look for. Now go have conversations with people. There you go. I love that. Well, this is actually talking about people managers, a great transition to our next segment that we call break the wheel or break a heel. Mm -hmm. uh, do, you, do you get the break the, break a heel reference? Do you know what that's a reference to? I mean, not, no, no, I'm going to answer I like, no. I like it. So uh, this is, the, some people will be laughing because, so it's a reference to wearing high heeled shoes. Yeah. Well, I got so that. You've never done. Oh, okay. Oh. And like you break a heel, like, but I didn't understand if there's something other subtle meaning that I didn't Break it down for me. No, it's 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 the opposite of subtle. If you've ever broken a heel before when you're walking around, yeah, it's exactly, <laughs> okay, exactly. Okay. It's it's like that. Or you have to take, anyways. So Let's, break the wheel or break a heel. The topic is, <laughs> the topic is people manager interactions with direct reports. So you're going to, I'm going to give you an item on this topic and you're going to tell me break the wheel or break a heel and as Wait, help me understand why would I say break a wheel versus break the heel? 
Well, Break the Wheel, you know, it's like Daenerys Game of Thrones. That's the inspiration of, of, of Break the Wheel. You think it's transformational, it's positive, it's a good thing. Uh, and Break a Heel is the opposite. Okay, I'm going to answer and you tell me if it's a Break a Wheel or Break a Heel. You're going to say Break the Wheel or Break a Heel. Ooh. Okay, give me that. Give me, let, let's do this. I've got, I know, I'm forcing, I'm forcing you to give your opinion. Okay. So uh, people managers following their direct reports on social media, Break the Wheel or Break a Heel? like welcome to the new world like break break a wheel break the wheel break it the is wheel. what it is <laughs> that's fair and also think stopped. and to every employee like the world's public think about what you're putting out there and who you're who you're inviting and who you're sharing with absolutely i think that's totally fair and i think we're all kind of uh proactively structuring what gets out on social media if anything yeah and i think our relationships around. are becoming more this idea like i think there's people at work that i would never connect with like the regular world and i think yeah. there's people at work that i meet that i like and they're they become friends so absolutely break the we break the wheel yeah and you know as we age we have limited places to meet other people in life like there's no harm if you really want to be friends with somebody you know even if they're a direct yeah. reporter vice versa it's all good okay, i like cool. linkedin do a lot of linkedin professionally people it's good that's true oh my gosh too too much linkedin uh, <laughs> all right next People manager interactions with direct reports. Discussing cannabis use. Break the wheel or break a heel? Depends on which state you live in. You got you to gotta make a choice. Break the wheel. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, I, I have friends now. I have friends that are working like at, at, at bringing psychedelic therapy into the workplace. Like, you know, I so. Actually, I, will, I will proudly say that ketamine uh, psychotherapy is something that was very transformational for me yeah. uh, in terms of navigating anxiety. 100%. Work-related anxiety. So, yeah, huge fan of that. So, fact, um, you know, definitely break the wheel on the show, Let's talk about that. I, awesome. what's that? Oh, I know break people. If you need somebody, I have some amazing people. Yes, yeah, send, send them my way. I, want, I would love to have them on. Head of awesome. DE and I at MAPS. Love it. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, cool. Next, getting drunk. People managers getting drunk with their direct reports. Break the wheel or break the heel? When you say getting drunk, you have to define, like having drinks is fine. I think that don't. Getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, get, then, I, then I'd say break a heel. Like you have, you have a positional piece of authority. You know, I see this even with executives. They want to be, I get it. But you know what? Like it or not, whatever you feel about it, when people walk in the room, when especially in our hierarchical, where, where people have positional authority, you need to be really thoughtful. It's not just friends. You know, what you say means things. Who you're hanging out with means something to somebody else. Go have your friends somewhere else. Yes, of course you should be social with your group. Go have drinks. Do not get drunk. Do not lose, get... Like, don't put yourself in that kind of vulnerability. There's too much There's too much at risk. And at the end of the day, that team is put together beyond you. There's a contract. You're there to perform. I mean, big have relationships be tight believe me i've hung out with a lot of colleagues but i think you, i think we need to draw lines as well and and particularly if it's a manager and and because it what about the person that wasn't there what about it's oh how funny is it? it's all guys and none of the women on the team are there like there's too much at risk and it's not right and when i talk about being culture first and being human um i think that managers and their desire to be liked uh cross boundaries that they shouldn't and, and undermine the work that they're really trying to do here here all right well i'm curious to hear this one then Having a romantic relationship, people managers with direct reports. Same thing. Break a heel. Very interesting. And if you are, I, I mean, if you are, I think you should report it. I think you should ask the organization to restructure things. I'm not saying that right. people don't have relationships at work, but I think it should be transparent and that the organization deserves to know. And that, you know, there's a, there's a bigger thing at play that that organization's hiring people and building something. And you start to put that into it. I think it deserves transparency and to be managed correctly. And when it's hidden, you're basically undermining, I think, part of your contract. Yeah. The, the transparency piece I think is, is valuable, I, especially in, in startups, uh, you know, early on in, in people's careers, like 
sometimes you see this kind of thing happen, but when there's at least transparency about it. It's okay, like, break the wheel or break the fun. heel. Uh, alternatives, no, yeah. uh, sexual orientations and lifestyles. What if you're polyamorous? What if you are, you know, where's the place for, what if you don't adhere to monogamous lifestyle? Um, is there a place for that in the workplace? Absolutely. Well, I can say this um, from, uh, so I had a, a sex therapist that actually one of the most famous ones, I'll say without revealing any names, but um, one of the things I remember learning from him was, at least as it relates, you know, I'm a gay man, as, as it relates to urban areas, and this was like about 12 years ago, like, you know, 2010, 2011, something like that. He said, um, the research showed that in urban areas in the United States, 50, 50% of gay men, uh, relation, that their relationships were, were open. Um, and I thought that that was fascinating because, first of all, it, it resonated with what I saw. But um, in terms of people talking about it and visibility about that, like there really wasn't a lot of that. So I, I really appreciate you surfacing that because, I mean, gay, straight, otherwise, like there's all sorts of kinds of structures of relationships. And there's, you know, whether it be polyamorous, monogamous, asexual, like all of the above exists. So I appreciate I think that's I think it's an interesting one, right? If we're really opening the lens – is there space for that? Or is that one of those hidden things that we just assume, you know, I, I, we say more, but I, I, I thought about that lately. What's the new, what's, what are the new boundaries and the new edges? And I think that's one of them, alternative like orientations and how people are, you know, in their lives. But if we're going to, you know, travel, do all these things together, that if that's, if that's your truth, can it be your truth at work? Is that something you have to hide? Totally. Well, and you know, there's this concept of, we talk about like heteronormativity that everybody expects everybody to be straight. There's also monogonormativity of everybody expecting people to be monogamous and that doesn't always happen. So. Yeah. Good, good servicing. Okay, fifth item. Yep. Loaning money. People managers loaning money to their direct reports. Break the wheel, break the heel. Break the heel, 100%. 100%, no doubt, This right? is all, That's all these things you're talking about, they're undermining and not respecting the power dynamics. And yeah. um, that just doesn't have a place. It's too, it crosses boundaries that I think shouldn't be there. Yeah, that resonates with me, absolutely. Moving on, the wheel breaker of the week. So this is a positive thing that we see, but I'm actually curious on this one. I read it, I was like, well, Let's see what you think. UPS recently opened its largest warehouse in Louisville, Kentucky. The warehouse is expected to initially employ 200 people alongside more than 3,000 robots, sometimes known as cobots. Uh -huh. The company claimed the robots are a boon for people operations, saying they'll increase employee retention by 30% and reduce workplace injuries. They said the move is part of the company's long-term <laughs> strategy to elevate customer and employee care through technology. What are your thoughts on that? So first, randomly growing up for two years, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and I learned uh -huh. is it's not Louisville. They say Louisville. You have to Louisville. Say, you have to say Louisville. Did I say that right? Louisville. It, everybody that's not from there, you say Louisville. I'm not Louisville. Pretend to say it right. Okay. It's like a it's Louisville. 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 Um, Louisville. What do I think about that? I think that I, I could give two shits about the spin that they're putting on it. Like whatever. <laughs> what? And it's truth. Are they going to reduce workplace injury? Hell yeah, they're going to reduce workplace injury, and they can have a worker for twenty four hours, but. Quite frankly, I think because of the work that I mean, like this is where I often have I look at things that you can hear just Craig as a human. Am I philosophical? Oh, it, it's it's sad and it's 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 been talked about. But I'm more interested in navigating and helping organizations. And it's the same with AI. Like it is robotics, animation. I mean, that's also going to allow us to bring back uh, manufacturing to the United States, right, where we've lost a lot of it because of so. And the truth is, and even now in China, it's becoming like, it just is. So we can sit around and talk all day long and, you know, hypothesize about, is it right? Is it wrong? Um, you know, my dad used to say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, what happened to 
buggy whip makers when the car came out. Like the world is changing and my whole approach is how to support organizations in the world to change and do it in a human way. Like I can't stop that. I have my own personal opinions. Do I like to see it or whatever? But in the end of the day, it is. And though, how do we still take care of those people that are having to interact with those robots? How are we take, you know, are we, you know, paying them more because we're saving money? Are we, I don't know. Like, I just want to see, I want to see organizations do right by the people, but I can't, I can't blame an organization is designed to be efficient. An organization is always looking. And it's the same with boundaries. Like if the people in the organization aren't protecting the boundaries, we can't get mad at the organization. An organization is designed to take. That's all it knows how to do. It's the people that set up the boundaries and say, this is what's acceptable and what's not. And we have to protect those boundaries. And I think the same thing holds like as an organization, you know, you're looking to optimize and to be as efficient as possible, especially when your competition is, what can you do? But are you doing it in a good way? Are you lying to people and saying, no, this is for you? Like, okay, like be honest or, hey, this is a transition we're going through. How do we take care of our people as we go through this transition? How do we do it in a meaningful and mindful way? So that's where I always go back to that I'm here to support organizations design themselves to be as most effective and achieve the outcome they're set out to achieve. That's why they exist, but also do it in a way that takes care of people. Absolutely. And if there's no accountability and there's not somebody actually like looking and monitoring to your point, organizations just do what they do. It's like incentives, you know, it's like when you're hiring, you know, an hourly worker, for example, uh, to, to do a task that if all you're doing is just paying them by the hour and there's no impact on their pay in terms of the quality of their work, they're just going to work as long as they can work. But if you incentivize them by saying, you know, like you pay them, you know, a bonus based off of like the quality of their work, or you pay them based off of the, you know, the number of some, you know, the times that an external party accepted the thing that they submitted, whatever it is, like there's uh, positive incentives that align, that create the right behavior. It's really hard to do that at an organizational level, unless you have some kind of incentive for the organization to do the thing yeah. that's right. And if there's no regulation and no external pressure, then they're just going to be efficient. Yeah. And, you know, you hit on something that it may be tangential, but it was something I thought about before we got into this. And that one of my ahas, especially if they're doing the work I've done with surveys, is thinking about outcome factors and input factors. And I think oftentimes it got my mind around this and oftentimes organizations don't. So it, I'll give you an example where this comes from. When you run it, when we run an engagement survey, you'll ask a series of engagement questions, right? That's the thing that they're trying to, to change. But that's considered the outcome. That's the thing you want to change, which is usually on pride, motivation, seeing themselves that the organization, things that are very hard to pull a lever on. And then you ask a series of other questions, leadership, management, systems and processes, um, belonging, all those things. And you look at how do these things relate to what we're trying to do, engagement, right? And helping organizations understand what are the biggest drivers of the thing you want, focus on those and test and believe that that'll drive what you want. Because what happens, and I think we were just talking about, if we incentivize the wrong thing, or you say to a leader, hey, as long as you get your engagement scores up, you're going to get a bonus. This is where the bad behavior comes in. Because they are only, I mean, I think about Wells Fargo, I think about United. I mean, there's a lot of stories about the wrong incentives were in place. People did bad things systemically, a lot of people. So it wasn't just one bad actor. And oftentimes it's because if you want a salesperson to do that, well, maybe the metrics are lots of phone calls, high quality calls. Are you calling the right people? Let's measure those three things, believing that if you do those, sales happen. Not, I'm only going to bonus you on closed deals, which means screw you, CS person. I don't really care about that because I'm just getting the deal. We're not supporting the whole system and we're incentivizing the wrong things. And oftentimes I think about this a lot. 
is when I look at things, are you incentivizing the outcome or the inputs and, and trying as much as possible to get organizations to focus more on what are the drivers of the thing you want Focus there? And that's a much trickier way to go about it. It's easy to incentivize what you want on the on the outcome, but that's also where we get a lot of bad behavior. So I think that kind of ties into what we're talking about in all of this. What are you incentivizing? Why? And are you understanding what's going to what's what are the things to incentivize that will get the outcomes that you want? Absolutely. Well, that's definitely some some wisdom on the rock. So Boom, know what you're incentivizing. Break the wheel. Sure you're, you're doing the right thing. Break the wheel. Break the wheel. You just insert that at random times. Break the wheel. No, unless it's negative, then I'll say break a heel. There you go. I love it. Now, see, now you can take this. I, oh, I'm with it now. You've, you've changed my life. <laughs> now you get it. I love it. All right. This next segment, one of my favorites, is called What Should I Have Done? So I'm basically going to tell you about something that I did in my life at the workplace, something work-related. Okay. Tell you what I did, and then you're going to tell me what I should have done. How about you tell me the situation? I tell you what you should have done. I want to hear what you did. <laughs> you, you, you said you don't want. Oh, no, well, I, I think it'd be more fun to like tell you my thoughts and then see what you did. Oh, like like as we're going through it, like you give me the okay. scenario. I'm like, here's what I would have yeah. done. And then I say, what did you do? <laughs> OK, OK, well, I'll, you I'll, don't have to. Let's do that. Let's this, give it a shot. This hey, is your show I'm all about experimentation. Let's do it. All right. So the scenario is working at a startup um, was traveling to uh, another city. Our organization had acquired a smaller organization. You know, I mean, we positioned it as a merger in terms of it was really, it was two organizations coming together. And like my role there was taking on a new team. I wanted to establish a connection with these folks, create a bond with them. They live in a different place. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, kind of meet them in their in their zone and and do what I can so that, you know, life will be easier when we're working remotely. In terms of that bonding, you know, like just in terms of our group. Did you get drunk, we, you get drunk you know, with them? Well, <laughs> the short answer is not not quite. I did drink with them, but I didn't get drunk. Fair with enough. Them. But but what happened was, you know, we we were with a big group and everybody was drinking yeah. and like the whole group, you know, yeah. out in a public space. So relatively safe. Yeah. Um, and But then as the night got later, you know, like I actually had one of these folks who wanted to like you know, go hang out with, with a smaller group involving like these folks that I want to really connect with. And I said, absolutely. And then, you know, we went to a different bar. They got just plastered, mm -hmm. just really drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't quite drink as much as, as they did, but I, you know, I was, I was, I was friendly, you know, we got along. I actually was wanted to make sure that they were being safe, Yeah. you know, so yeah. I wanted to make sure every, you know, here's the, I got you guys glasses of water, you know, a lot of that. Right? Yeah. We go to another bar uh -huh. and I'm in there with one of the guys and then another person runs in and says, Hey, so-and-so just one of, one of these folks you're with is getting in a fight out in front of the bar. Okay. That's the scenario. The question is, is what do you do? First of all, I would go outside. I would go see what's going on and I would, unless it felt dangerous. I mean, if this is escalated to a point that it's dangerous for just like any fight where it's like back away, don't, don't hurt yourself. But I don't think that's the case you're saying. I think that I would do my my best to protect my colleague and get them. How do how do I de-escalate the situation? Maybe have somebody. So you try to get in the way and kind of like. I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would try. I would, I would, yeah. Especially, especially with a colleague that I don't want to see them have any kind of bad ramifications, find themselves getting fired because they got like all kinds of things that you are together. You're a work team. You take care of one another, especially when people are drunk and there's a fight. Is there a way that I could de-escalate and try to like? I get it. So I mean, stuff gets gets it gets out of hand. But I like when those kinds of situations happen. I usually keep a cooler head, you know, and just try to like deescalate the situation. And like, I get it, you know, people, and I think sometimes when people get up like all chest to chest and it, it's hard to deescalate between those two people because they're too, they're too committed to, to their position that 
I personally think sometimes they're waiting for somebody to get in there and give them an excuse like, yeah, I would, I would have ripped your head off if, if Craig didn't pull me aside. But I, I would want to try to do my best to remedy the situation. Kind of like, like on a football field when they're all doing their thing and the refs get in there and kind of break it apart. What'd you do? All right. Did you get into, <laughs> you want to know what I did? Did you get into a gang scruffle? <laughs> no, I, so, I mean, so, okay. This is in terms of background, right? So there, like, I imagine, you know, if somebody is male or female, like how their level of comfort to doing something will, will vary, I guess. Cause in my case, what it was, was, you know, I, the truth is I never pretty much ever go to like regular, <laughs> regular bar what <laughs> you might call a bar i call a straight bar uh, and i don't usually go to straight bars okay. you know like yep. if i go anywhere in the past right i'll go to gay bars was this a straight bar etc yeah fucking straight it was, man. It was a bar and all, yeah everybody else was, was straight and yeah no like the people don't fight in gay bars what they do is they have catty comments to each other they have, <laughs> they have drama and they talk trash and you know they they make people feel bad about themselves but no no physical fights yeah, right yeah, yeah but i find that bars and clubs yeah. like straight bars and straight clubs yeah. like that's you know not quite as uncommon and so for me i just like i didn't know what to do and i was frightened af yeah um and i did not want to get in the way because i actually was concerned for my own safety yeah. As a, as I was concerned about the safety of this other guy. Yeah. And so I kind of just stood there with, with my jaw dropped, not really sure what to say or do because, you know, like put on your own mask before helping others. Yes, like yeah. I was, I was afraid, you know, well, I think that, um, I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think that my answer is the only right one. I think it's just the Craig one. Fair. You know, I worked when I was in, so I was in the military and then after the military, I was in college and I worked at a, at a nightclub and a music venue and oh, I just got exposed to a lot, like, and I noticed that my, like, I, cause that, that stuff used to freak me out a lot too. And I also kind of just saw it enough that I was like, I could keep my heart rate down and keep cool. But I also think that you did nothing wrong. You do not have any obligation. And if it's not in your comfort zone, you know, I think there's guys that like to go out and do that shit. Like, how come that never happens to me? You know, how come it seems to happen? <laughs> how come that always seems to happen to the same dude that gets into like fights at the bar? And that's kind of a little on you. Personally, if I was there with my colleague, I'd try to deescalate it. But I don't think you did. Any, I think there's nothing wrong with your response. And I think you are allowed to take care of yourself and you don't have to own somebody else's decision, especially when you're out of your element in many ways. You're somewhere you're not used to. Probably you're in a new place. Like if I was in Germany for a work trip, this is the first time I've been to Germany. Like I might be a little more apprehensive. I don't know what the, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand the culture. I don't know. So I think you, I, I personally just want to say that I think you are absolutely entitled and you don't owe that anybody anything. You just have to do what's right when's best for you. Oh, I appreciate that. And, and I totally think if I had your experience, I, I might've been more comfortable doing it. So we're aligned. I appreciate that. That's good. Heartwarming end of story. All right, moving on. Uh, horror story of the week. Do you have a, a brief horror story? Horror story. When you say of the week, I just think back over the last, this last year, unfortunately, it, you know, and I know we go through these cycles and it's been a rough year and the horror story really is all of these really, really sad riffs, these really sad layoffs. Look, and I'll, Look, as somebody in this space and as somebody who was many, 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 many years ago, really inspired by places like Google who keep getting on the list of the best places and all this stuff. I have friends that worked at Google and there's a two, three that I know of that, that got laid off and they both, they all had similar stories. One was there 17 years. And so get this, could you imagine after 17 years, you know, companies say, come here, be part, like we're creating team, family, whatever. Waking up and having your Slack, your email, your entire connection. And it just upsets me. And I'm calling, I'm saying Google on purpose because this is public knowledge. And it's really, you know, 
these are the, these are the torchbearers and they showed up poorly. I think they'd probably own that. And it makes when I hear those stories and I've seen other companies do it in a good way. So look, there's the saying that you can tell a lot about a culture by the way they bury their dead. And I think a lot of organizations want to let go of responsibility at the end to make themselves feel better. And it really hurts me that I was at LinkedIn and there was this, this ideology that if somebody had to, at least when I was there, if somebody had to be fired, we're all responsible. We hired that person. We made this decision. It's not working. How do we do it in a good way? And I get, again, back to the game, that companies have to go through things, that these things happen. I'm not, I'm not naive about that. But when I hear a company cut somebody out that abruptly after 17 years and not realizing, like, there's probably goodbyes that need to be said. There's probably how I, I'm sure there's a lot of things to think about, safety, security, but how might we? How might we do this in a good way with these people? And so I think the horror story is just what I've been seeing this past year when hard times hit. And I think what's the problem is I'm trying to, in my work and helping organizations move the needle forward, when that happens, I feel like we just slip backwards, that, that people again say, I can't trust you when you say, come here and form relationships, collaborate, form human connections. If the world keeps reiterating that at any moment, it doesn't fucking matter and you're not going to think about me as a human. So I think we all need to have responsibility in this and we can do it better. I, I'm not naive. These things happen. But um, I think it's been really sad and unfortunate to watch how some of these, these Zoom calls where everybody gets cut or like that. It can be done so much better. Absolutely. If you're going to cut, cut humanely. Absolutely. Well, horror story. I think a lot of us have seen these days and one that I hope that more companies will pay more attention to. Um, we're, we're going to be wrapping up here imminently uh, a couple more, more segments here. Wobbly wheel of the week. I like to, to dive this one. This is, you know, not quite breaking a heel, but maybe a wobbly wheel on its way, uh, on its way. Yeah. Uh, Jack Dorsey is getting rid of annual reviews and pips at block and said the company will give workers a rating of exceeds meets or falls below expectations. This news came shortly after Dorsey warned of upcoming job cuts at block. I know some folks who've seen this story, you know, really recovering the the just the pips angle of it but i'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this one yeah this is interesting this is like right at the heart of what you're doing look um when i was at culture amp um when i started our main tool was the engagement and while i was there we, we acquired a company called zugata and that brought us into the performance management space and i had to spend many years kind of getting my head around it i hadn't really started in that space and there i was working with clients so i, I learned a lot and thought a lot about it I, first of all, will be the first to say, and, and, and almost in a positive way with you, that I fundamentally really struggle with performance reviews, and I think we, we agree on that. I think that it's an easy, because it's so painful, because everybody hates it, because it's so problematic, it's easy to say, let's get let's just get rid of it. But I really had a, a moment when I, I was talking to the, the CEO of Zugata, who became like our senior product person on, um, on performance, and he really helped me think about this differently. Like, I think we, again, by having being honest about the situation when it comes to performance, every employee, there's a contract in place. Like there's a relationship. You're going to do X. We're going to provide you with X and benefits. And because it's contractual, there needs to be moments in time where we evaluate the contract. How are we doing? Should we increase the work? Should we increase the bid? Does she get, right? Like it is contractual. And I think sometimes we want to ignore that, which is separate from development and growth of, of, of the human. But we have to take these moments to evaluate how are we going? and looking at it. And what he said was, that's happening regardless. So it's easy to say, let's get rid of performance reviews. It makes everybody feel better. But what you're doing is you're just pushing it underground where it's gonna become, the bias is still there. We know that the, the stuff around men, we know all of these things around pay equity. So what his point was, I would rather a flawed 
transparent system that's working towards minimizing bias, even if it's not perfect and painful, we have to keep working on making it better than taking what feels like the easy answer, which is just get rid of it, because what we're doing is more damage. Like, it's so problematic if you look at the data around um, if we don't put controls in place where bias and where these things come into play when we're talking about people's lives, their promotions, equity around all of that. So my stance on that is, I mean, I'm not having dug completely into it and what he's saying about what your ratings are going to be or not be. But my point is that I know it's easy. It's painful. No one likes it. That's the work that you're doing. And I think we can do so much better that it's not designed. Performance management is not designed for people. It's, you know, it needs, we need to do better. Um, but getting rid of it only is going to, there's more problems if you stop and think about it that have a bigger impact on humans. So I think we just keep working on how do we make it better. And I'd rather a flawed system that's transparent than a, a, a tucked away, pushed away version of that. Absolutely. I, I love everything that you just said. And, you know, it's really common, especially with continuous feedback systems and folks who having these horrible experiences with the performance management platforms process. I mean, it's a nightmare. You spend weeks on calibrations. I mean, it's, it, it's awful for everybody involved, the traditional the traditional way. And yeah, like if, if it seems like you can cover your bases just doing continuous feedback, you might do it. But everybody inevitably who says, let's just abandon this and do continuous feedback, you realize, oh crap, we actually got to measure this stuff. We got to, to your point, like we're having How are this you going to promote your people? How are you going to pay your people? How are you going to make sure that you're doing it not because somebody's buddies with the manager? Like you, Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so when I see this, I mean, I, I, it's like, I empathetically understand why organizations hit this conclusion, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, if all you have to brush your teeth with is a block of wood, you're probably going to stop brushing your teeth. But maybe if you just go out and explore, you'll find this thing called a toothbrush that actually is pretty darn good at it. And maybe, you know, if you're really looking around, you'll find whatever, an electric toothbrush. Like that's what performance management looks like these days is people have this block of wood. And so they go like, I'm just not going to brush my teeth. In reality, um, we, I mean, a lot of folks forwarded this news to, to us at Confirm as this was happening because, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes I feel like being at an organization that's still growing and a lot of people haven't heard of, of ONA or just the methodology around um, being able to see these tales of performance that, you know, show the power law instead of the bell curve that you get out of these manager ratings. Like mm -hmm. when... When we see news like this, it, it feels like people say the world's going to end and you know that there's a way to save it, but you don't know how to reach them. It's like, it's this feeling like, um, who, what's the person, I don't know, some Greek mythology, right? The person who's destined to like know the solution. I don't know. Somebody listening is probably going to shout out a name, but the, <laughs> the point is feeling like, you know, what a solution would work for an organization like this, but you don't have a way to really communicate that to them in a way in which they would hear it because, you know, you want to identify the the top 15% creating 50, 5, 0% of the value or the bottom 5% creating 50% of the problems, which is what all of our. Well, I really, our I do commend, I commend what I, I do like about the work that I know about what you're doing is that you really are trying to rethink about this and trying to address some of the fundamental problems. I think, look, I watched what we did. I've watched Lattice. I've watched other, and it still feels, and I, I said this internally. I mean, I don't, I don't hide this that like, again, I, I stand with, with, with the comment I said before that something, you know, transparency and a flawed system is better, but I still feel like we're putting band-aids on, we're not really addressing the organizational structures and the things that are in place that aren't working, that this is inside of. And um, until we do, we're just, we're just trying to make a better broken system. And I, I, I'm, and I think, it's two, it's twofold. One is we have to rethink our organizational structures that this idea of this pointed top hierarchical, like it doesn't, it, I mean, I understand where it came from, but if we really evaluate it, it's not aligned with what most of our companies are saying they want today. And then we're trying to put in performance systems that are aligned with that. It's not how we work. You know, I often say to people, 
like you, you don't have children, I do, but whatever, like think about the responsibilities you have in your life. You know, even the basic shit, feeding yourself, getting a shower, going shopping, organizing that next trip, uh, taking care of the people you take care of in your lives. How many managers do you have for that? Right. Yeah, we yeah. go to work and, you know, like I have children, I have all these responsibilities and I go to work and I've got three tiers of manager. Like, where did that happen? And we don't need as much. I think we need to rethink this whole thing. We've just accepted this, but the truth is, the truth is, I think, and we're not going to get into it today, like there's a place for managers in the future, but we have to rethink them and we have to rethink what it means. It's not just a function. It's like the old the old idea of HR is just there to protect the top. You know, managers are just there to protect the top. They're not. They're there to support the people. And how do we create better systems that are less command and control and that really tap into what, what really drives and motivates humans to build the right organizations for the, the promise that that organization is making to the world to be successful and exist? Um, so... I, I, so when I get really philosophical in this, it's like until we really address how our organizations are designed, we're, we're going to have problems because we're trying to put a measurement system on top of a broken organizational structure. Absolutely. All right. I hear, hear. I'll say that much. A couple more segments that we're wrapping up. HR speak funny. So this is where we, we pick a phrase and uh, make fun of it. BCC ninja is, is today's phrase. Have you heard of the phrase BCC ninja? No, but you're making me feel like an old guy now. What's BCC ninja? <laughs> a BCC ninja is an employee who secretly includes others in an email conversation without the recipient's knowledge. Ooh, not cool. Again, like, you're right. And this, this goes <laughs> you to- You would never admit to it if you did, but- no, no I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Maybe in an older version of myself, but like I would, if I was working with that employee, I'd be like, what's really behind this? Like, what are you trying to serve? Because, um, and I think in the end of the day, if there's a situation that has you feeling that that's important, it's the challenging situations where character is really tested. And I think it's easy to show up and be the good person when everything's going well. But when you're frustrated or you want to like talk bad about somebody, to pull something like that is it's mean, it's it's manipulative. And it's like if you're going to show up that way and then be frustrated about the organization showing up for you, then like you're you're playing into your part. So I, I always call on everybody like, what would you do if you're being your best self, even in the face of bullshit? And when I hear people do something like that, it's just it's not clean. It's not clean. And how can we build a great, a great workplace? You know, with culture, I, you know, I talk to people and I say that like. Culture is, it just is. So if you're sitting and you're complaining about the culture not doing anything, which is fine, that is your role. Is that your role? Do you want to be the guy that's the BCC ninja? Like that's the person you want to be at the organization? <laughs> you're not like, and then you say you really want to work in a better workplace. Like you can't have it both ways. Fair enough. Well, speaking as somebody who did Taekwondo when I was a kid and did not do it very well, I can say that I probably wouldn't be a really good BCC ninja either. Or uh, I, I wouldn't mean. be one if I tried to be, and I probably mean. accidentally CC like the whole company or something. Yeah, yeah uh, I'd mess it up. Oh, totally. I've, have you ever seen that happen? That's juicy. I'll, I'll just yeah, say no, that's that good. much. I, I, that I enjoy. <laughs> All right. Last segment, decline to comment. You're going to pick. So I'm going to give you three questions. You're going to answer two and you can decline to comment to only one okay so if you decline to comment to the first one you're gonna have to answer the next two okay all right? you up for it yep all right number one who is the worst manager you ever had um it's it's very clear i'm not going to name the name but it was probably one of the most uncomfortable situations of my entire work and it also set the stage for everything i did i mean um, set the stage moving forward. But I also take responsibility. I sort of walked into it with my, I wanted to be the boss. I wanted to be a manager. I wanted all these opportunities. And this particular man, I had this opportunity to go work in a new department. And I knew I'd be working for this person who had a history of being really tough. And I was like, but I can do it. Um, I spent a year with this person. Um, I basically, in the middle of work one day, 
while interviewing with this person, other people, I basically had a panic attack the first time in my life. Next thing I knew, I was out in front of the building calling my wife saying, I, I, I think I just quit and I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't, it was one of the scariest things in my entire life. Uh, as I look back, it was the wall that I needed to hit that I walked myself into and really created the path for everything that came afterwards. Um, but it was hard and it was mean. And I, you know, part of it was watching not only being under this sort of scrutiny, but I was a manager for this person and watching them. Um, they, I mean, they would pull people in the office and like start in on them and then the people would be crying. And like that point, you're like, okay, that's enough. And this, they'd keep going and keep going. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't cool. It, but it also was a big, a big lesson for me. And it, it's experiences like that, that remind me every day of the work that I do, because somebody out there is experiencing that today. And if I can start putting data in front of that, that, that stuff gets teased out real quickly, or people have, they can't be blind to it. You either have to say, we accept that here or, but, but people hide out without any sort of data or any way for employees voices to be heard. That stuff can exist because well, they get results. And, um, I want that, that those kinds of stories inspire me and, and push me to do the work I do every day. Wild. Well, clearly managers make or break everything. My goodness. That, that sounds wild. All right. Question two. What was the biggest stretch or exaggeration you've ever made on your resume? <laughs> um, <laughs> so funny. Um, I, when I first thought about it, I really just, it's just not, you know, my, I feel like my work is, is spoken for itself. I don't feel like it was stretched too much, but when I was, um, it's funny because it was one of, probably one of the, when there was a question I was thinking about before we got into this, which is like best job ever. And when I was um, young, I spent a couple of years working as a summer camp counselor and that experience taught me a lot. And I, I always lean on that. Like that was a great, like everybody gets along, everybody's committed to the mission. It was these wonderful experience. And that has also fired me up on the opposite side of why can't we bring more of that to the workplace? Um, however, the first year it was, remember I told you I moved to Louisville. So my, my, my parents split, my mom had to move and I didn't want to go to Louisville I wanted to delay it as long as possible. And I so the only way to do it was get a job, but I was 14. So to work at this campus at CIT and get a job, I had to be 15. So I lied in the whole summer, which felt like the biggest thing ever that I was living this big lie. I was a 15 year old, but I really, I was a 14 year old. Interesting. That's, that's pretty lame. That's like, that's my best exaggeration on my resume. I'm sure there's something. Hey, better, hey well, everyone, everyone's got their I was own living thing, a lie though. all summer. <laughs> you might have felt really bad about it, right? Even if it was. I did. I think like, by deal. the end of the summer, I think somebody found out. Like I didn't. You know. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Simpler times. All right. Question number three. What have you used AI to do and like didn't mention it? So you're kind of just taking direct credit for it. Oh, I'm all over that. You kidding me? And I don't, and I don't <laughs> feel, like and I don't feel bad about it. Yeah, look, here's, here's the deal, right? I've worked inside of these many, you know, this is my first time as a, as a solo. As a matter of fact, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be running, starting my own business. It's the first time in my life. It started six months ago. Talk about a time when AI came on the scene and I'm, I'm uh, like blown away at what I can produce in the productivity. But for instance, I'll work with it to write um, content or articles. And part of me is like, is this right? Is this wrong? And I think to myself, I've sat inside these organizations where they hire people for sixty or $70,000 a year. They come from who knows where to be professional writers. They basically say, we want you to write this. They come back and say, here's what we wrote. And they say, hey, can you tweak this or edit this? And they go back and they do it. And then they say, can you do this or do that and edit it? And then they say, this is great. Let's send it out to the world now. And, and as I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, if I can afford $60,000 to pay somebody, they might be okay at it. Nobody blinks an eye, but because I'm leveraging uh, ChatGPT to help me organize my thoughts and do the same exact thing, like, I'm not feeling bad. I've seen I've seen behind the curtain. Um, so anybody that 
would say differently. It's like your comp your competitors are doing it. They've been doing it. If you have the money and you can run an organization, you can do it. But all of a sudden I can't do it because that's cheating. BS. I'm not. And look, I have kids. I talk to them all the time. I'm like you have to be good in integrity with the rules of your school, but I am not against you using these tools. But I also like if, you know, play by the rules. That's the environment you're in. Don't cheat. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell them to not leverage this technology that's not going the other direction. So, um, I mean, I've, I've used it. I've, I've already written contracts with it. Amazing that I can have a conversation with something and have a contract written. How much money did that saved me? I, I've seen people work with professional writers. I know what it looks like. And all of a sudden I have a professional writer I can access at $20 a month. Mm -mm, I'm in. Well, I love what you said early on that, you know, 60% of organizations are using it, but like nobody's talking We're about talking it. About it's kind of like a premarital sex in the fifties. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, there I think I think there's people I think there's people everyone out there, especially when we're distributed, there are people working an eighth or a quarter of what they used to work and you don't even know it. And and the question is, does oh, it yeah. then then does it matter? Do we need to restructure our organizations? What's it about? Is it about control or is it about output? Yeah. A lot to think about. Well, with that, Craig, it has been uh, an honor to to chat with you. You are you are full of wisdom and insights, and I think this, this is the longest podcast we've had yet. But I think it's for, oh, it's for good. Enjoyable, not boring. I, no, no, absolutely. I think I think it's it's worth it. So yeah, break uh, the wheel. Ending, yeah, Sorry. breaking the wheel. Yeah, ending on a on a positive note. To cheers to change. So this year, Walgreens will close most locations. Or I guess by the time people hear this, last year, Walgreens has closed most locations Thanksgiving Day for the first time in its history, joining the recent trend of other large U.S. retails like Walmart and Target for closing for the federal holiday. I'm definitely a fan of letting people take their freaking time off. So yeah. here, here, cheers to change. Cheers, change, and cheers, cheers. Work, work life balance. And uh, Craig was an honor, and I wish you a wonderful year new year next year thank you david Life. i appreciate it. wish me a, wish me wish me all success in my new endeavors uh at culture c consulting and helping more organizations you know the thing about culture amp was that i could only work with the clients that that i was able to work with and that i saw so much need and there were so many more clients that wanted more support and how to better leverage data and embed it in their in their decision making so really that's what i've set out to do with my consulting um to help more organizations either use the tools that they have better or help them bring in tools and bring data and listening to the forefront as a, as a strategic initiative. So um, that's what I'm focused on next year and anything we can do together or anybody listening to this, um, you know, please check me out www.culturecraig.com or come to uh, my LinkedIn page. Find me there. I'm easy to get a hold of and I'd love to have a conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Craig Foreman, founder of Culture C Consulting. Good to meet with you. Have a wonderful Thank you, future. Thank we'll you. chat soon. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Break the Wheel podcast. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again for more insightful conversations.